Hello, and welcome back to the Long Distance Love Bombs podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy Goldberg, and today's guest is Julie Lithcott Hames. Oh my lord. Um, where do I even begin with this? So Julie is an author. She is the former dean of some part of Stanford University. She went to Harvard. She's been on CNN, NPR, Good Morning America, PBS, CBS. She wrote a New York Times bestselling book about parenting. She wrote a memoir about being black, biracial, queer, <laughs> that sold tons of books. Uh, she has a new book out called Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, which has been described as groundbreakingly frank. And I prepared for this conversation under the assumption that Julie was a parenting expert. I watched her TED Talk, which is about raising good kids. Uh, it has like three to five million views or something. It's outstanding. And then just before we started recording, she alluded to being so excited to talk about a new topic with me and that she's kind of, you know, done enough talk about parenting. And she's like, I can't even believe I'm a parenting expert now because I wrote that book. And, and I had this moment of like, oh, shit. And so I, I spoke up and I was like, just so we're clear, what's the topic that you believe that we're about to discuss? <laughs> and she said kindness. And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, um, I'm completely unprepared for that. Nonetheless, we dove in, and this is one of the denser, more hearty conversations that I've had on this podcast. We talked about very heavy topics. I took an opportunity to kind of force my way into her brain and into her heart and ask her about a post that I wrote a while back. The crux of was, why do I feel bad for bad people? And we ended up talking about George Floyd a little bit and forgiveness and remorse. And then we started talking more about her new book, which is about adulting and how to adult. And she tells personal stories around that. And we dive into the loss of eldership. We talk about community. We talk about the state of the world. We talk about hopelessness. And Julie is... A phenomenon. This woman is powerful. Several times during the conversation, she teared up. She let loose. She is wise and eloquent and funny and so smart. In full transparency, after we stopped recording and we were having a little bit of a quick debrief before she had to run off to a meeting, she said something like, hey, let me know when this one is out because I'm definitely going to promote it. You know, I'm on a lot of these things, but this one, this one was fucking different. That's what she said to me. And so maybe I'll leave you with that. This one is fucking different. And I hope you like it. And I hope it makes you think. And more importantly, I hope it inspires you to take action and to use the agency and opportunities that you have to create what Charles Eisenstein says is the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible. Enjoy this conversation with Julie. There's the second button. I got your consent. Julie, 
Lithcott Hames. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Welcome to the podcast. Where's your internet? Have your has your internet dropped out? You know what? I switched over to my Ethernet. I switched over to my Ethernet and it, which is usually the better connection, but it just it was not there. So I switched back to Wi-Fi. Welcome back. Thank you. Julie Lithcott Hames. <laughs> We're off to a flying start today. Uh, we glad, are. <laughs> <laughs> glad to meet you. Glad that you're here. For those that have no idea who you are, what your name is, uh, how do you describe yourself? Who are you? Oh, Jeremy, how much, how much time? Um, uh, I don't mean to sound like a narcissist, but you know, that's such a big existential question. I'm Julie Lifcott Hames. I'm 54. Just recently had a birthday. I care about humans. I'm rooting for all of us. My work has continually been about trying to, uh, make the way easier for some set of humans around me. And I've been a lawyer. I've been a university Dean. I now write books and have the opportunity to speak about them with awesome folks such as you and with your listeners. And um, I'm imperfect. I'm learning. I'm growing. I'm a mom. I'm a partner. I'm a daughter. Um, I'm black and biracial. I'm queer and bisexual and in a heterosexual marriage to a cis guy. I got a lot going on and I have messed up and am deeply flawed and really believe in all of us. And my work, I hope, reflects that. That was fabulous. I well, love that you, you just said, I got a lot going on. <laughs> <laughs> if that's not the human condition, I don't know what is. Right? Yeah. yeah. But when you say, I'm rooting for all of us to make it, yeah. what do you mean by that? A long, long time ago, way before you were born, from the looks of it, um, <laughs> a guy named... Mario Cuomo was the governor of New York, the father of the current governor or former governor under siege. Um, Mario was a Democrat who said something like, as Democrats, it's not about one of us making it to the finish line. It's about all of us making it. And I heard that probably in a keynote speech at a Democratic National Convention in the 80s or the 70s, I'm not sure, when I was younger. And it stuck with me that it was a belief system I held that I'm not here to win some race against all humans. I'm actually interested in all of us making it. And so I, I want all of us to get across the finish line, whatever that means. I want, I want nobody left by the wayside. And I'm firmly a believer in the fact that shit happens and that I don't tend to blame people when shit has happened. I don't call it their fault. I have tremendous compassion. Gosh, I can hear the emotion rising in my body as I say this. I have compassion for the accused. I have compassion for the underserved, um, the voiceless. I just, I just have this confidence that all of us began as these innocent little beings who wanted a chance. And some of us had a lot of luck and a lot of opportunity just handed to us by dint of where we happen to be born and to whom. And a lot of us did not have that. I was born privileged. I am a privileged person. And I think I feel the inherent unfairness in that. And, you know, how do you fix that? How do you change that? I know that there's systemic change available and political and policy change and donate your money here and vote for these things. But I also know 
that so much of that is outside of the individual control of any of us, but what we do have control over is us if we work at it, which I think is what brings you and me to be in conversation today, which is that we both believe in the power of the individual to effect kindness in the lives of others. And I think that can make all the difference. That is one super way to help others make it. And so um, I think that's what I mean by, you know, just help make it, trying to make sure that, that others are helped along on their journey. Like Ram Dass said, we're all just walking each other home. I love, love that metaphor. So, yeah. What would be your response to a question that I commonly get when I'm a guest on podcasts? I'm just curious for another perspective. And the question is, why are you such a proponent of kindness and compassion? Like, why is that your thing that you believe in? Like, how would you respond to that? Because I've seen human beings light up with a sense of possibility, with a sense of their ability to persevere, with their sense of relief when others extend kindness to them. I have witnessed the dramatic transformation in the body and what I can observe of what's happening for the recipient. I've also seen what happens to the giver when it, when it occurs. And I've seen third parties also pivot their own actions in response. I have witnessed the magical butterfly effect of one act of kindness. And so it feels to me to be magic. And I want all of us to know about it. And I want all of us to get better at practicing it. Because it's free. It's free. It's magical goodness and it's free. So this is how we level up as a human species and start to reverberate in a, you know, a more harmonious way. You've not heard it put that way. How do you put it, Jeremy? I, I've not heard it described as magic. And I really, when you said that in my body, I was like, yes, that's cool. I'm going to steal that line off. Steal it. Steal it. Yes. I, I've often described it as a root solution to a lot of the root problems that I see in the world. So when you talk about addiction, racism, classism, domestic violence, all of it, I feel like at the core would benefit from some amount of kindness and compassion. So are you a sociologist or an economist or a, a psychologist by training? Are you coming at it like root solution data? You know, this, this is a function of that. Is that part of your training academically or in life? I joke that I'm a recovering scientist. Yeah. But my background is in, is in the hard scientists, hard okay. scientists, sorry. And then I transitioned into social science. Sorry, see, I called you a social scientist by naming sociology and psychology, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, you got it. I didn't get the hard science at the root of it. I, but, you know, had I spent a little bit more time thinking about it, just listening to how you framed it, all of that was evident and all of that is valid. And um, I come from the perspective of, you know, the power we have as individuals showing up with other individuals one-on-one can make such a difference. And um, I, so we're most definitely talking about the same thing. So I agree that the root problems can be solved, addressed and solved if we are, get better rooted in kindness as our magical ability. 
right? You don't need education. You don't need a certain station in life. You don't need a particular car, a certain amount of money in your bank account. In my latest book, Your Turn, I call kindness one of our superpowers. And I say, we all have access to it. It's like a seed that's already within us. And we just have to cultivate it as we would a seed in our garden. We just have to know it's there and pay attention to it. And so that it can be strengthened and, and blossom and become this thing that we can then wield in the best, like Thor with his hammer, like, look, like kindness, boom, you know? You're wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) It's so kind of you to say that, Jeremy, what your listeners don't know is I showed up like haphazardly seven minutes late for an hour long podcast. And you're so gracious and generous. And I'm, I'm, I really appreciate the compliment. I feel like I could be myself with you which is something we all yearn for, you know, just to, can I just show up and be me? Um, So many of us can't in certain circumstances, family, relationship, work, community. And you and I met because we know someone else in common. Uh, We have a common friend or a friend of yours, acquaintance of mine. And so that helped pave the way to this knowing that you and I are feeling right now. Um, I think you're pretty awesome too. Thanks, Julie. I, I received that. Yeah, I think we we both. Uh, I've described it as like the same team. Like yeah. when I when I meet somebody that I just immediately vibe with, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm like she's she's on my team. Like she's That's on right. or she's on our team. If I'm introducing <laughs> them to someone else, I'm like, oh, you yeah. got to talk to Julie. Like she's on our team. Like I love that. Yeah. Okay, can I steal that from you because yeah. <laughs> you're gonna steal my kindness's magic thing? Yeah, I love that. She's on our team. I've heard people say, you know, she's he's they they're good people. Um, as which feels like a synonym in conceptually. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, where to go from here? You reminded me uh, when you were just describing that of a post that I put on Instagram a couple of weeks ago or a month ago or something. And it was uh, something that I believe to be true, but also something that as a straight white dude in America, I'm like, this is going to get some feedback for sure. And the premise was, uh, and I would I would love to hear your thoughts on this because, as a bit of background, I reached out to I would say a dozen experts in morality, ethics, kindness, compassion. I was like, hey, would you come on the podcast and talk about this with me? Because I don't know what to do with this. Nobody said yes, and so now that I have you kind of trapped on the podcast and we're recording, ah. I feel like this is a good opportunity. <laughs> for- <laughs> For me to, to ask you about this. Lay it on me. So I'm just going to be yours. So basically, I wrote this post in which uh, this was like right after, I think it was the George Floyd protest, where for those listening, uh, a dude was killed by a cop, essentially, is the, is the short story. Uh, you, can, you can add to that if you'd like, Julie. But A black dude was killed by a white cop. That is a very important distinction. In public. Yeah, and slowly. Recorded, and it slowly. Was a, yeah, it was a slow death. It was, it was absolutely national, torturous. Yeah. Yeah, it was horrendous. Yeah. And I, uh, I was reading about this and feeling into it. And I realized that at some point in that process, I felt bad for the cop. Mm-hmm. Not, not condoning what he did. I, I fully believe in justice. I believe it was wrong. It was disgusting. It was disgraceful. Uh, etc. He should be punished. And I felt bad for that dude because 
his life was ruined overnight. He, he ruined his life. And he woke up one day, went to work. At the end of the day, he was the most hated man in America. And so I approached all of these experts and I did this post of like, I feel bad for quote unquote bad people sometimes. And I don't know where to draw the line on the spectrum from minor infraction slash cheated on a test slash got a parking ticket to committed murder. And I don't know where on the line to put my stake in the ground as an individual and as a society that says, from this side of the line, we don't feel compassion for people. And on this side of the line, we do. So I recognize that I maybe didn't describe that super eloquently, but you I'm did. Okay. No, you did. You did. And if I may say this without sounding paternalistic, I think it was brave of you uh, to say what you said and also to be interrogating it further on your podcast to whatever extent you can entrap people to have this conversation with you as you've done with me. In other words, we shy away from tough conversations these days because of cancel culture and just the fear that we're going to offend and therefore ruin our lives in a much different way than this particular policeman ruined his life. I want to replay back to you how you unfolded this to me. You first said he woke up one day and his life was ruined. You know, he woke up one day, went to work and his life was ruined. And then you rephrased it as he ruined his life. And I think it is important to get clear on what acted on what his life was not ruined by something anybody else did. He chose to end the life of somebody on a sunny afternoon. And um, however much he was conscious about the choice he was making, what have you, it was his actions that led directly to the ruination of his own life as he murdered someone else. And I think it's important that we state it that way, that this wasn't a bad thing happened to him, because I think our volition in our actions has a lot to do with our culpability. But regardless, to your point, you laid out a spectrum of like the little bad things to the like other end of the spectrum, the murderous things. And where do you put your stake in the ground and decide compassion uh, is appropriate here, but not here? I wouldn't frame it that way at all. If I understood you correctly, that was sort of what you were laying out, that there's a specter. Do I have that right? Yeah, that was sort of the way that I presented it to people, which was like, I feel bad for bad people. And, and we could argue that he is at, the extreme, so at yeah. the extreme end of the spectrum. Yeah. And I still feel bad for him. And I don't know what I'm confused. Yeah. I want to have a conversation. I don't right. know what to do with that. So I think the better spectrum of analysis is the degree of remorsefulness. So I find myself able to forgive even the most heinous of things if the person who committed those things or perpetrated those things, designed those things, has come to a place of remorse, of just uh, atrocity at themselves, like I'm not atrocity, um, you know, it's just so, so disgusted that they did that. Um, because I believe in second chances for everybody. I believe in redemption for everybody. I, you know, I, if that human is willing to acknowledge and atone and what have you, I am here to say, I will sit with, you know, I, 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 I feel that, you know, I'm sorry you did this too. And when the person themselves feels the sorriest, I think then anything is possible. 
Um, but when they don't feel remorse, when they are constantly blaming somebody else or, you know, failing to take accountability or explaining it, it feels to me like they're not having compassion for the person um, who is harmed at their hands. It's hard for me then to have compassion for them. I, I can still, however, Jeremy, go to a place of this person I'm upset with who has done this horrendous thing probably has done this horrendous thing because of stuff that happened in their life that led to them being this person. And I can find compassion for that. You know, I can imagine that person, Derek Chauvin, as a three-year-old or a two-year-old who was a good little boy. And my heart aches for that little boy, um, for the path that he chose and ultimately uh, culminated in him taking the life of an innocent man and um, the ruination of his own life. Um, so I can summon compassion there, um, even if not feeling sorry for him for what happened to him as a result of that day. Yeah. And I think that's where I get to as well. It's like, I don't know. I used to work at a preschool and like I grew up around babies. I've got a bunch of siblings, it's like the Brady Bunch kind of. And it's like little kids, when you hang out with them, they're pure. And yeah. They're like they're honest and they just. They learn from you. They're sponges, right? So you yeah. know this. You're a parent and you have children. But it's like, I don't, I don't, like it's all learned, right? These, these habits, these belief systems, these ways of being and seeing the world. And I don't know. I have a hard time. I have a hard time reconciling that belief that I have and then seeing grownups perpetuate terribleness and like, and it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Like we're all just grown up babies. Yeah. I you know, know what to do with it. Yeah. Um, and I appreciate, I just want to acknowledge you and I appreciate you for, for taking this on and kind of yeah. accepting this conversation. Yeah. When, when you probably didn't anticipate. <laughs> no, I didn't at all. Philosophical um, deep dive. I also found myself just when you opened it, when you were like, for those who don't know, George Floyd was, I was like, who doesn't know about George Floyd? You know, is it possible that there are people who don't? And what does that say about the way uh, they live their life versus the way I live mine? Um, as an African-American, so many of these instances have gone unnoticed, have not shown up in people's news feeds or on their Instagram. And um, but when when one's own community is hit, we know about it and we want others to care. And so uh, I appreciate that you acknowledge some people might not know. Um, it was, um, you know, it's an assumption I make that everybody would know about that. Um, so I, I appreciate your opening my eyes to that. The other thing I want to say is I think it's possible to hold space in our hearts and brains for contrast and contradictions and paradoxes. I think you can be absolutely in anguish over absolutely in anguish over the murder of a person and feel for them and for their loved ones and for anyone who knew them and all of us who are impacted by it and watched it and are triggered by you know like we can have I think we can have so much compassion and we can say I also feel really sad for this guy who did this. Um, I bet he didn't set out that day um, to, you know, murder a person and completely alter his own future. I bet he didn't set out that day. And I, you know, 
if he did set out that day, that's a different problem. That's a psychopath. And, 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 and maybe we can ask, should we have compassion for them? I think they don't have remorse, which is why I would say I can't bring myself to have compassion for them. Maybe the three-year-old them, but not the current them. Um, but I think it is possible, assuming he has regret uh, at this point, um, I think it's it's possible for me to hold both the anguish and concern and anger about what he did, but also to feel, you know, for a remorseful person, compassion for them and to hold both of those in my heart at once. I think that's well said. The the complexity, I've heard it described as a both and in, yeah. in terms of relationship, communication, et cetera. Like, I can both love you and be driven insane in this moment and cuckoo up a tree by what is occurring in our dynamic right now. It's just mm. like, um, mm. I can be really disappointed and also still love you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, maybe we could transition out of the depths of this discussion over yes. towards something know, lighter, <laughs> something lighter, a bit lighter, if, if you will. Please. Um, <laughs> so maybe this is a good intro to your new book. If you want to talk about that a bit in terms of adulting and some of the, I don't want to say tips and tricks that were in that <laughs> yeah. book or right. basically, Julie, anything that you want to talk about after that, we need a palate cleanser. Oh my goodness. Okay. So I'm holding it in my arms right now. Um, This book is a love letter to millennials and older Gen Z's. We talked about how I'm rooting for all of us to make it, um, how I believe in all of us. And this book is me as a former college dean at Stanford University trying to show up on the page, which is hard to do, as a dean who cares deeply about the reader who's holding my words in their hands or listening um, to to my words uh, through an audio book. I am trying to sit with and next to and across from in an intimate spacing with a person like close saying, you're scared. You feel uncertain. You're not sure you're worried. You don't even know if you want to do this adulting thing. I hear you. I'm here for you. I care about you. It is hard. But hey, guess what? It's also fucking amazing to be an adult. To be responsible for yourself, not a dog held on the leash, held by somebody else. You know, you're not somebody's project. You are your own thing. And it is go time. It is your adulthood. It is happening. And I want to share with you things I've learned and bring in stories from other people's lives to help give you a sense of the myriad infinite possibilities that await you. If you are willing to do the work of asking, who am I? What am I good at? What do I love? Where do I feel a sense of belonging? And then you give yourself permission to go do that work and live in those places and spaces and be in relationship with those people. That's what this book is about. And it just came out in the spring and it's been a pandemic. So it's hard you know, to kind of be out there in the world with this book. But um, this is my 459-page love letter to millennials and older Gen Zs. It is not about tips and tricks. It is about, and there's a lot of tips and tricks in there, but the book is not a tips and tricks book. It's an existential, you fucking matter. And it's your life. And I am rooting for you to live it. That's what this book is about. Love that. Even when you picked it up there and I saw the, the heft of it or the girth. I was like, oh, dang, that's a proper that's a, book. It that's, is a proper that book. That is a book. Yep. 
yeah, I call it my big bouncing baby boy because it's my third book. So it feels like my third child, but it is the biggest of all. And because you can't TLDR adulting, it can't be reduced to 100 tips or 10 tips or 468 mm. tips. It's um, it's this wide open landscape and it is bewildering. And um and there are things you can learn from other humans. The way that I like to put it, Jeremy, is, and for some reason I'm having the urge to call you Jer, and I just met you 35 minutes, my friends 29 family, minutes ago. My friends and family call me Jer. So okay, you, good. Jer. You want to be on the team, like, come on in. Yeah, you can call me Jer. <laughs> Jer. Yeah. Humans have taught humans how to be human since humans were human. We have, through oral tradition, through storytelling, through gathering around the fire or the table or where have you, we have taught one another how to be italics, B-E. We've taught each other that going back through time. And this book tries to replicate that in a modern context. Um, it It is complicated and complex and entirely doable. And so that's my purpose with this book. Yeah. I mean, the ambition of writing something like that or starting a project like that is huge. And I lacked the ambition. No, no, no. I lacked. It takes a lot. It would have taken a lot of ambition had I the idea been mine. This was a business call uh, from my publisher. My first book on the harm of helicopter parenting uh, as a method of parenting that harms kids had done quite well and they wanted a sequel focused on young adults. Not to presume every young adult has been overparented, but uh, they did see a connection there, like write a book for the kids of these people and maybe for all kids. And I accepted that offer, signed a contract and then failed to write this book for three years. I could not see my way in. Who the hell am I to be giving other people advice on how to be an adult, I thought. Who has a PhD in adulting? Nobody. You know, like what's the expertise needed to advise a whole slew of others? And finally, 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 after failing at, I mean, getting rejected when I submitted outlines and like we agreed to the concept of a book without even an outline. And I was submitting things and they hated the things I was submitting and telling me yuck and wrong. And I just couldn't locate any authority within myself. And then finally I said, You care about humans. Let that be the authority. You've lived 50 plus years. Let that be the authority. You've met a ton of different people from all kinds of walks of life. Let that inform you and be vulnerable in telling about your own shit. The lessons you've learned that you hope you can help other people learn a little bit more easily. Put all of that in there. Open with vulnerability. Lead with authenticity. They will then know that you care and maybe grow to trust you. And then maybe some of the actual advice in there will begin to resonate. So I located authority. Finally, they liked my sample chapter, which is chapter five out of 13. And it was the first one I wrote though. It's called stop pleasing others. They have no idea who you are. And this is about work and relationship. This is the hinge of the book. And um, uh, they said, this is working. Whatever you did differently, it's working. Like keep going. I wrote this thing during the pandemic. You know, the pandemic was afoot and they were like, finish this book, finish this book. And in my chapter on how to cope when the shit hits the fan, I'm like, hey, I am writing this during a pandemic. You know, and George Floyd was just murdered. Like all I said, 
in some ways, that's one of the overarching themes is just keep going. Look after yourself, show up in your work, keep going. And uh, the fact that this thing came to life during the pandemic is astonishing to me. I mean, I had my own really tough moments, but at this point I was trying to be of real use to others who were also struggling. So this book, I came by this book the hard way. (laughs) I got the contract the easy way, they asked me, but the actual work of it took a whole lot out of me. And I am, in the end, proud of myself for having gotten it done. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing the process. I think so many of us see a book on the shelf. Well, me, at least before I wrote my book, it's like, you see the book on the shelf and you just assume, ah, they're a writer. They just write a book and it goes up there and it's easy. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. no. Yeah. But um, I'm proud of you too, for what it's worth, for having known you you for 39 minutes. Yeah. Um, Thank you. That is a, it's a big deal and a huge topic. And I'm sure you're going to get a lot of very heartfelt letters from strangers saying very kind things to you. If if you're not already. I am. Thank you for that. And um, that is happening. Older people are saying, I know you didn't write this for me, but I feel like you did. And uh, I've said it. I'm glad to hear from you. I'm not surprised because adulting is not, uh, it's a mysterious. I mean, it's, it's a, it's the stage of life we enter and stay in as long as we've survived childhood. So we're all doing it. We're all continually doing it. And there's a lot of folks who are wanting to retool, fine tune, level up, do it differently, take a massive right or left-hand turn at all different kinds of ages and stages. And so I think the book ultimately, Jer, is a mirror. The book is a mirror. You read it and you see yourself where you need to. And some people will see themselves really deeply in the money chapter and others in the self-care chapter. And others will just be delighted that I'm referencing mental health challenges throughout. So it's not a like asterisk. If you're depressed, see page 300. I'm honoring the myriad life paths we walk, the conditions and situations we contend with, the identities, the circumstances. It's a deliberately highly inclusive book because I, as given all the identities I described at the front end of our convo, I am tired of opening nonfiction books that purport to be offering help to all that only center the white, straight, middle-class, educated experience. I am tired of those authors writing to all of us ostensibly and ignoring so many of us. And my book envisions every single reader. And I'm sure I have overlooked some, but I have gone to great lengths to be highly inclusive of all walks of life. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you about that. And even I read on your website, there's a list of, of like diversity that has been included in that book. And it's every color, creed, belief, religion, shape, size, et cetera. And you've gone to great lengths to ensure that it is all encompassing. And, uh, and I've not seen that so specifically done in a book before. And it kind of like raised my eyebrows like, damn, she's like, just going for it. It's a, that makes it even larger scale and scope, I suppose. Well, I'm secretly trying to change publishing. Yeah, no, I like that right? part too, where you're like, yeah. first sentence called out the traditional publishing. It was like, oh, I like her. I'm glad. It is called A Commitment to Inclusion. I'm holding in my hands a, a printed copy of it, a two-page thing. And I'm just going to read from like one piece of it, which says, 
Your turn demonstrates page after page after page that to do the work of ensuring that all lives, in fact, do matter, we must intentionally bring those who've been kept in the margins onto the center of the page. Some readers will overlook these details, but many readers are hungry for a book and a way of writing and editing books that truly sees all. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question. I'm currently reading a book called Come of Age by Stephen Jenkinson. Okay. Familiar? I'm not. Okay. No. So basically the, the book is about the law. It's about elderhood. Okay. And about the loss of elderhood in our culture and in our society and the impact of that on the world, essentially. Mm. And so I guess where I was going with that is his, his premise is we've lost elders. So, so the people just below the elders have nowhere to go when they need something, when they are feeling down, there's nobody demonstrating what to do, how to live, how to be, how like the, the knowledge and the wisdom is kind of disappeared along with the elders. And it's, I saw a little bit of overlap with what you were describing there. Of like people are coming up from, from being young to young adults out into the world. And in our society, this you know, American society that I'm speaking primarily of Western capitalism, you get thrown out into the world and it's like, okay, you're an adult now, get a job, sort it out, have a family. Like, and there, and there seems to be a lack of structured support in our society. I don't know. Anything I, for you there? Absolutely. Can I, first of all, I've jotted down the name of the book and be excited to check it out. Can I ask a clarifying question or, or what is what I'm finding sort of incongruous as you say um, this? How is it that people are living longer and yet we're lacking? We've lost our elders. Shouldn't we have more elders? What is it that's changed about how elders, air quotes, or people of a certain age behave or how we treat those people such that we are failing to reap the rewards of having elders in our society. Yes, that's that's the book. Okay, <laughs> great. So okay. it's a really powerful point. I had him on the podcast and I was saying to him, like, okay, so we have elders uh, and we have the elderly. Yeah. Right? So all elders are elderly, but not all elderly are elders, right? So we've lacked this somewhere. And he, he has another book called um, Die Wise, which is all about death. And he worked in um, hospice and palliative care for a long time. Yeah. So his, his premise of that one is that we live in a society that is death phobic and grief illiterate. Yes. And so as a consequence of that, as a foundational tenet, and it makes sense that the elderly, what do we do? We, we sequester aside. We yes. put them in home. We don't respect them. We say we do, yeah. but we don't really. Really. Yeah. Got right. you. Yeah. Good. Yes. I mean, not good. I agree with him. And, and I think it's bad. Um, and I think, therefore, I think what this gets to is um, for one to be recognized as an elder, one can't confer elder status upon oneself. Right. It's something the younger folks recognize about you and revere. So what we're really saying is that the younger folks have stopped, have pivoted away from a reverence of elders and have decided to sequester elders away in nursing homes and and so on, Um, which is a which is a damn shame. Um, Here's another thing. We um, aren't as neighborly as we used to be. Our neighborhoods are, I think, probably since we became two income households, 
uh, in the main. Um, we have lost the fabric of people home who, um, you know, who were the the people that held the neighborhood together and watched out for everybody's sort of collective uh, situation. And I'm not saying it, uh, implicit in this is women went into the workforce, men didn't exactly stay at home. Um, who was there to caretake neighborhoods? I'm not. I'm not begging for a time you know, of the past, I'm saying, how can we in our modern future allow for everybody to do the work they want to do and need to do, but also for us all to take up the oar of, you know, getting us toward tighter communities where there are connections and we're all aware of the elders among us, the elderly, the elders, those with with more years and more wisdom. Um, what can we, you know, I think the societal fabric, I think the the lack of elders, the loss of elderhood is a symptom of a larger fracturing um, that is because uh, we've also lost childhood. OK, childhood has become this relentless in many communities, middle class and above this relentless pursuit of um, certain degrees of achievement and attainment in furtherance of the right adulthood. So we're sort of our kids are running right past a healthy, wholesome childhood to get to their adulthood, which is then this fractured place of possibility. And, you know, the capitalism has made it so that it's unaffordable and you're supposed to be an adult, but you can't afford to move out of your parents' house. And your grandfather blames you when I was a kid. I agree. You know, like, okay, grandpa, you don't get it. Like so much has changed. And embedded in this chaos is an opportunity, particularly given the other chaoses like climate, um, for example, like there's this really important, urgent moment we're at right now where we have to ask ourselves, what is this century going to be like, you know, and how can we, how can we curate some better outcomes? Um, we have, I feel like Captain Kirk or whoever it was on Star Trek that would have said like, we have the technology or whom I'm clearly not a science fiction person. I have no idea who said that, but like we, we have it within us. And maybe this is where we come back to kindness. Like, but we, we have so much capacity within us to fix these things. I think we lack leadership. I think we lack leaders. You want to talk about what else we lack? We lost elders. We've lost leaders. We've lost trust in institutions and leaders and strangers. We're afraid of strangers. We've raised two generations now of American kids who won't look at you when you walk past them and say hi on a sidewalk, which means we've lost courtesy. We've lost a sense of how to read someone else's body language and looks on their faces because we've been taught to fear everybody. Good Lord. I'm like, give you some snaps. I'm here for this. This is fiery truth. I'm I'm a hundred percent in agreement. And so, of course, the follow up I have to ask you is like, what what do we do about it? <laughs> we put on great podcasts. And here's where we pause, Jer, and say, everybody listening, thank you for listening thus far. If stuff is resonating, notice it. Take notice of what's happening in your own body in response to this conversation we are having, because we're having this conversation for you. And we are inviting you to be a part of it, to feel it in your body and ask yourself, which bits am I you know, most resonant with? What do I want to follow through with, right? Um, I mean, I think the answer is grassroots level conversations about how to strengthen our communities, our sense of progression from childhood to adulthood to eldership, 
conversations, local, local conversations among friends and family happening all over the place is essentially to sow a new set of seeds in America and therefore have some confidence that a different harvest is possible. And if that ain't the cheesiest metaphor I just pulled out of my, you know what, I don't know what is, but that's the image that came to mind. You know, like farmers have, they say like this soil is whatever problematic. It's not yielding anymore. They have to like dig it up and put new dirt in and switch the crops around because this soil is done. And that kind of feels like where we are. The soil is depleted. We need new soil and we need to plant new seeds. And I think your podcast and my books and a zillion of their efforts uh, all pointed toward uh, this better way of being. I think all of these things are possible. Love it. I love it. You're, you're wonderful. I would like to spend time in your presence and drink tea and talk about things. Where are you, Jer? I'm in Squamish, north of Vancouver. No way. I've always wondered if I'm saying that correctly when I see it written, Squamish. Yeah, Squamish. Yeah, nice. And, and I'm the in Bay the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. So we're on the same time zone, same coast. Yeah. So we definitely need to meet in person. And we need conferences yeah. and connections and convenings and so on of people, yeah. of the myriad people like us who are feeling this way. Yeah, and I guess to go back to to what you just responded with that that wonderful analogy. What what I heard was like something, like do something. Like it is it is not enough. This is like me. I just felt myself start to get on my own soapbox here of like, mm-hmm. okay, hang on. Like so many of us, I hear uh, I hear a lot of like complaining, whining, concern, fear, judgment, etc. And and I and I don't see enough of like, I'm going to try something. I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to start a group. I'm going to say something. I'm going to launch a business. And so like, I would encourage anybody listening to like, just do something like yeah. that you're called in your body that excites you or that, you know, is right or just or needed. Like just have a, a one conversation today, every day, do something. I love it. You know, you and I are talking before the Christmas holiday, and I don't know when this is going to come out, but I will tell you, and I write about this in your turn, one of the greatest pleasures I have in life is to go into the grocery store on sort of December 23rd, wearing a Santa hat. (laughs) The hat is not required, Uh, but I do it just to create like curiosity and just bring a little light and levity. This is all pre-pandemic, but even now in the pandemic, even more so I'd say, because we're all masked, I would, I would want to bring this lightness and levity. And Jer, I'm on the lookout for people who've been sent to the store with a list. Okay. You can tell because they look at their own list and they don't, they're trying to decipher someone else's needs. And typically it's the partner right? Of the person who's doing the cooking or the visiting family member of the person whose home they're staying at, right? So they're lost. They're in an unfamiliar grocery store or they're unfamiliar with the task. And you can see they're confused and lost. And so I try to just hover nearby and listen to themselves muttering like, oh God, where's the dark brown sugar? And I'll be like, oh, hey, you're looking for the brown sugar. It's on aisle eight. And sometimes I won't know where it is and I'll go look quickly. I race over like, can I find the brown sugar? Then I'll come back and like regulate my breathing. And I'll be like, chill. I'll be like, Hey, did I hear you say looking for the brown sugar? It's on aisle eight. 
That shit brings me joy. They're so grateful. They're so grateful. And all I'm doing is helping somebody find the dark brown sugar on aisle eight because they feel someone noticed me. I matter. I'm not alone in the world. People are kind. People will go out of their way to help me. It's like, and I can feel the resonant bot. Like in one grocery visit, I might get to do this four times. You know, like I don't linger all afternoon. You know, I don't want anyone to call the security on me, the strange person in a hat in aisle nine, you know? Um, following me around. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I am African-American. I do, like, but I'm very light-skinned, so I have the privilege of light skin. And I do worry sometimes that people be like, oh God, you know, who's this stranger who's yammering on at me? I, I try to pick my person and I pick my moments, but my point is do something. It's like, I'm going to go out and wreak a little bit of kindness, which I hope will foment a little bit of happiness in the safe way. That's what I'm going to do today. And you know what I know, Jer? It's going to make me feel better. If I'm losing my mind because some shit is happening, I'm stressed about this or someone was mean to me or what have you. I know that if I can just turn that 180 degrees, get out into the world and be kind to some strangers, it'll help them. It'll help me get back to my set point where I want to be. Amen. Be a helper. Yeah. Um, but we say be the helper okay you're i know we gotta go i'm sorry be the helper fred rogers i i'm the first mr rogers generation like he spoke to me as a two-year-old that's when his show began and he said look for the helpers and i quote him in your turn but sometimes i think we help we think the helpers are the emts like the people with the oxygen mask and the ambulance and they are but each one of us with armed with nothing more than our own heart can be a helper. And I think that's the message that I'm trying to convey by sharing the grocery story. Goosebumps. You just gave me goosebumps. Okay. Cool. That, uh, like a hundred times that. Yeah. 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 Um, Julie. Jer. James. <laughs> Gosh. I love you, man. I love <laughs> you. Thanks so much for a great conversation. I'm on so many podcasts and this yeah. was really fresh. Good. It was, I mean, we had the, the meat and potatoes at the beginning there. We got a little bit of the lighter, more desserty stuff. And then we dropped back in for some, some more sustenance. It was hearty. It was. I feel nourished. I also. <laughs> I need a I nap. Mean, that was a lot. Yeah, well, it was, but I tend to be really, I am, you might feel like you need a nap and you've done the heavy lifting of preparing. I'm feeling sparkly, like tingly gratitude. I'm feeling if I could have a conversation like this every day, imagine how all days would feel. If other humans could have conversations like this, like this is the this, this is the work. Yes. Let us, I want to figure out like how to connect your little dot of light to the, your listeners and to mine and to people who follow me. Like how there are so many of us yearning, yearning um, for, the, for more. So here's to freaking 2022, man. You know, that, that is what's required. Yeah. And, um, if you know any lighthouses that you want me to talk to, I would gladly have them on board. Okay. Oh, Julie sent you. Yeah. It's a yes. Come on in. Okay. You're on the team. But for those listening, um, Julie, I know you've got several books, a website. Uh, is that the best place for people to find you? Where can they get more of you? Yeah. Appreciate that. Couple things I would say, uh, three things. I'm on social everywhere. Jay Lithcott Hames. 
everywhere on social. My first initial, last name, no hyphen. Jay Lithcott Haynes everywhere. Please follow, connect. I do like to be in conversation with folks who care about this stuff. So I will engage you. My website is julielithcotthames.com. My full name, no hyphen. That's the locus of information, largely speaking. And then my newest initiative is a weekly blog called Julie's Pod, which is jlithcotthames.bulletin.com. When you read my stuff there, and if you DM me, I'll send you a sticker. I'm showing this to Jay right now, the lovely little sticker that says Julie's Pod that comes. Um, And it comes with a hotline for those who can't comment publicly wherever the blog is read. I have this hotline, one eight seven seven hi julie It's a little red phone that I listen to messages on. People can leave a confidential message and I do a live roundup on Facebook every Monday, noon Pacific on the calls that have come in while keeping the caller's identity private. I'm sharing the shit people are going through so that they feel less alone. I offer my advice if they want it. And uh, it helps the audience of people listening feel that they're not alone because they can resonate with some shit someone else shared. Wow. That's my side hustle. It's not a hustle. I do it for free. There's no money involved, but I just do it because I love to hear humans sharing their stuff. That's so cool. What a neat idea. It's fun. I think I want to be like an old fashioned radio host, you know, like a call in show. Yeah. Like it's Julie. I'm listening. That's what it is, except it's not synchronous. I love it. Well, I'm just going to invite myself to every party you ever throw. If you ever want to talk to me, like I would gladly put my hand up. Like, how can I help? How can I support? I love it. All right. Well, you need to go. You have a meeting. Yeah. But thank you, truly. Like my whole heart. That was very special. And uh, I feel grateful to have spent an hour with you. You as well. And it was only 53 minutes because I was late. But I'm grateful to you for your graciousness, for your listeners, for listening, for you, for hosting. And to Caleb, who introduced us. I'm going to just circle back to him and thank him uh, because he was absolutely right about Mm. the goodness of this connection. Yep. All right. Take care. Me too. Thank you. Hoo wee. I mean, that was a thing, right? Wowzers. Whammy. That was a whammy. That was a whammy maker. That is Julie Lithcott Hames. And yeah, sit with that one for a minute. Take some breaths. So inspiring, so wise, so powerful. I would invite you to take us up on our invitation to action, to being one of the helpers, to being the difference that this world so desperately requires. It is uh, a privilege to have that responsibility. And I hope that we all do our part to make use of that and in turn make light in this oftentimes overwhelmingly dark scenario called life so that's julie as mentioned you could find her books and the links in the show notes if you liked this conversation please share it please post it on instagram and say hey this was amazing you have got to listen to this that is exactly how the ripples happen that is how we make more of an impact on the planet and that is help we spread how we that is how we help spread the word about kindness and compassion. So thank you for listening. Thanks for being here. If you want, you can find me everywhere at Long Distance Love Bombs. I send a weekly newsletter out with my favorite books, movies, shows, articles, podcasts. If you want to know what I am consuming, that is the way to find it. 
and I also tell a few stories, spread the word about some ideas I've been considering. Okay, enough about me. Go and live your life. Go and be one of the helpers. And thank you for being here.